Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, compassion for all beings, social justice, and much more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast. And in this episode, which is episode 11, I'm speaking with spiritual teacher and author Hamid Ali, who is more often known by his pen name, A.H. Almas. Almas is the creator of the Diamond Approach to Self-Realization, a contemporary teaching which he developed in the context of both ancient spiritual teachings and modern depth psychological theories. Almas has authored 18 books about spiritual realization, including the Diamond Heart series, Pearl Behind Price, and The Point of Existence. I met Almas at his office in Berkeley, where we sat down for a comfortable chat about things like attachment to the non-dual viewpoint, a way of awakening that he calls the unilocal, the role of instinct in the spiritual quest, the essential activation of continuous awakening, integrating awakening with the phenomenology of Husserl and Heidegger, and a whole bunch more, including aliens. He's a fascinating guy with a lot to say. So I'm really happy to present to you the episode that I call Reality Let Loose. Hamid, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Well, good to be with you, Michael. Good to meet you, too. Yeah, it's good to first meet you time as well. We meet, yeah. It's the very first time. Let's just begin by talking about your new book, The Alchemy of Freedom. Yeah. In that book, you're really digging into the true nature and using some very interesting terms from alchemy, such as the philosopher's stone and red sulfur and so on. So in reading that, I was fascinated by some of the way you're talking about true nature as being the one thing that actually wakes anything up. So let's just start there. Yeah, that's actually a common thing in many traditions that the spiritual nature is really the source uh, of waking up, of enlightenment, of illumination, because it is illumination, it is enlightenment. So different people call it different names and look at it differently. I think of it as some kind of a mysterious, uh, difficult to describe, determine reality or truth that is a source of light and awareness and illumination and awakening and life, many things. It's, mm-hmm. in fact, the source of everything. So, as you mentioned, that is a rather common idea about the true nature. What would you say is the most uncommon element in what you're trying to communicate about it? Well, the uncommon thing, which I'm trying to illustrate in the book, Alchemy Freedom, that many people think of true nature, you'll, you'll arrive at a certain state, kind of state of realization, enlightenment, and you find true nature, and you know it for what it is, and you basically stabilize there and live from there. And it is one thing, and you assume everybody else will get to the same thing when they become realized. And in the book I'm saying is that's not true. In fact, aren't you saying that's only level two out of four levels? It's not exactly levels. It's more like true nature manifests itself in different ways. Four different turnings or four different... Well, the four turnings that I have in the book, I mentioned the four turnings, there are different teachings I have 
about through nature. Mm-hmm. And each one of them presents realization in a different way and through nature in a different way. And so the whole idea for turning is to show that through nature is not one static monolithic truth you discover and that's it. Through nature is much more alive, much more mysterious and has many guises, many faces. So to call it pure awareness, for instance, to nature is pure awareness, it's true. However, true nature can also be something else, can be pure emptiness, or true nature can be pure love, or true nature can be pure indeterminate truth. And each one of them, realizing each one of them is enlightenment, is illumination, is awakening. And I don't compare them in terms of hierarchy, which one is better, which one is more. They're all true nature. So let's assume there are these various forms. Is there anyone that you particularly just like better, personally? You know, for a long time, when I was what I call the second turning, where non-dual teaching, the one-dual realization happening, I was in a state for many years that I called uh, Samadhi in the Absolute, which Buddhism would be called, uh, you know, Dharmakaya, for instance, or, you know, in Hindu you might call it uh, Shiva, Brahman, in different names with slight differences. For a long time, I thought that's it. And I, uh, that's what it was. I was happy there. I was completely still teaching from there, all of that. So I loved it. But then other things started happening. At the beginning, I didn't like them. I thought they were a disturbance. They were sort of <laughs> take me a tangent. But then they didn't leave me alone. And they kept coming and coming until they manifested more. And they realized what's happening is a new way of manifesting through nature. That is not what I call the absolute. Can you give me an example of what some of these, quote, disturbances were? Well, for instance, I was experiencing the absolute as a vastness, mm. a vast, luminous fact, very depth uh, of awareness, where all of reality is a manifestation, like surface manifestation, just like the ripples of the wave of the ocean are the surface of the ocean, but the, the absolute is the vastness beyond the all of appearance, all of uh, reality. So everything was on the surface. And I am this depth from which everything comes from. It was like that for years. And then I realized at some point there was something that was inside the depth that wasn't at the surface. And I said, how can that be? And it wouldn't go away. And I thought it will dissolve. One of the things, it didn't dissolve. In fact, it got more and more there until at some point I had to pay attention to it and it turned out to be an amazing kind of thing because it opened up experience to a different way of experiencing enlightenment, basically. So in this place of continuously contacting what I would call, let's say, the void or whatever, you noticed that there were some things deep inside there that were at first were disturbances. Were these like emotions or interactions with other people or or was it no something it was other a kind of presence a presence so that's kind of presence about the form a particular form presence but 
and it wasn't dissolved by the voidness of the absolute. Because, as you and mentioned, because the voidness absolute dissolves everything. Dissolves everything, but and in it fact, didn't dissolve that. Many Which people use that it. to that dissolving quality exactly. to work through everything. Right? Yes, and so here was something that wouldn't dissolve. Wouldn't dissolve, and I even not only by my own experience, I went to some other teachers. You know, some great lamas got their transmission of the void to see whether that will dissolve it. Didn't dissolve it. So, what was yeah. the moment where instead of desiring it to dissolve, desiring it to show its void nature, you turned and wanted to see what could happen with it. Yeah. So at some point, it's sort of like uh, it uh, exerts itself in such a way that uh, it became more and more foreground in the experience. And uh, at the beginning, it was together with the voidness. But at some point, it displaced even the voidness and became what was there. Mm. And it was a kind of presence that cannot be called void or not void. Like the question of void and not void wasn't like in the um, non-dual. Some teaching will talk about how the true nature is not void, not both, not together, right? They mentioned that. Yeah. But in this presence, all these were irrelevant. That's not the point. Void or no void were just inapplicable in that kind of uh, presence. And what were the things, qualities of this presence? It's like crystalline kind of uh, clarity and presence that uh, what it did is changed for me the nature of time and space. Mm. You see, because in the voidness, although it is timeless, right? And the voidness is timeless. So you're, you're sitting in the void and time doesn't pass in you, although it passes in everything else. But there's still a sense of spaciousness and the voidness has a spaciousness and an immensity. It feels infinite. Yes. So there's a sense of infinite extension. Even though it's called beyond space, but it is infinite extension. It goes on forever. There's no end to it, like infinite space. In fact, many of the teaching compare it with space. You bet. They use space as a metaphor. And this new presence basically took that out, made space disappear. Not only time disappear, but space disappear. And the way it did that is more like experiencing the presence. I feel that I'm not extended everywhere. Me, as an individual, at any point, I contain all space, mm -hmm. which is a very different way from the classic way of understanding enlightenment or non-dual experience where I am everything, I am the universe. But when you say, I am the universe, you are really big, like the universe. Here, I am the universe without being big. Yes. So it's not like it took me deeper, but it took me to a different direction of experiencing reality. Did you experience that as the collapse or removal or ending of a subtle mental image of space? Yes, what I saw is that in the non-dual experience of the vastness of the Dharmakaya, there is still a subtle concept of space. And here I realized there was a concept and that dissolved and disappeared and 
That doesn't mean that the idea of space disappeared from my mind. It disappeared from my experience. Yes. Although I could think it, but my experience was not that. The experience was beyond space and time. So it became kind of realization where as this presence, I contain all space and all time. I'm not timeless. Even timelessness is irrelevant. Time, time, it's because I have all time. So what do you mean by timeless? I am the now, I am the yesterday, I am tomorrow, I am all time. And not only that, I am the all times of all people. Yeah, all the manifestation of the world is inside that. It's all inside, yeah. So instead of manifestation being outside, the surface of the vastness, here all manifestation is within. It's like all manifestation was interpenetrating each mm-hmm. other, like each object contains all other objects. Yes. Each point contains each other point, which other teachings have mentioned. It is there some places. It is not emphasized in non-dual, and that is one reason why I'm bringing it up, because everybody is dwelling on non-dual, and I'm saying, wait a minute, there are other kinds of spirituality, other kind of illumination, which are just as liberating and just as interesting as the non-dual. That's right. I'm curious, in your taxonomy, where does this spaceless realization fit in? Is that the third or fourth? I, I put it in, in terms of the fourth, uh, the third turning. Third turning. Yeah, because the non-dual vastness, whether it's consciousness or awareness or emptiness, I see it as the second turning. And because that's in terms of the development of my path, that was the second way reality manifests itself. Mm-hmm. Then the third turning, when start having this experience, I, I call unilocal instead of non-dual, unilocal. I mean, everything in, is, is unified in its locality, but because only one location is no location at all. Mm-hmm. So it is a very interesting thing, which uh, brings about a different kind of experience. Like I'm talking with somebody, and I feel they are inside me, and I'm inside them. And, you know, I'm walking around and... Uh, in the countryside, I'm looking at the mountains, they're over there, but they're also inside me. Mm-hmm. Inside me as this particular human being. That's the curious thing. Yes. You see? What about the fourth turning of the wheel of your experience? So the third turning becomes the realization of this kind of presence. So, and I see it as a vehicle of presence, as a particular form of uh, true nature that wasn't obvious in the first or second turning. Third turning became very explicit as the main thing, but it showed itself to be a wormhole to other kinds of realization. Mm-hmm. One of them is a non-dual, one of them is a unilocal, but shows the other kinds. So it's almost as if the unilocal is a doorway. It's the doorway. The unilocal is basically made me see the value of the unilocal is showing me that the non-dual is not the end, mm-hmm. is not the only, oh, there are others. Mm-hmm. And so the unilocal became sort of my separation from non-dual and experiencing something else, which then opened up the possibility of other ways too. And until now there are many other ways. So the fourth turning is really opening to many other ways of realization. In the unilocal awakening, did you notice a sense of um, 
intimacy and real lightness and softness of connection because everything's inside you. There's this kind of like very gentle connection with all of these It feels, yes, there is a sense of intimacy in it and connection. However, remember, the second turning in the non-dual has intimacy in it, has a sense because nothing is separate. That's what non-dual means. I'm connected to everything. Yes, Here, but however, it, it's yeah. different. Yes, the connection is different. The the uh, non-dual everything is unified as a unified macrocosm, for instance. In the unilocal, everything is unified, but not unified by being all expression of the same reality, but unified by being everything is everything else. Yeah. And it is everything, everything else, because true nature here is so transparent. There's no obstruction. The transparency is so complete, like even space is not something in between one thing and another. So things sort of fall into each other. And most people begin, will first think, well, that'll make things crowded, <laughs> right? <laughs> everything all in one point. The fact of it, it feels very spacious. Yes. Very, very spacious. And the intimacy is complete because it is not just I'm connected. No, I am you. Mm -hmm. I'm not just connected with you. I am you. And you are me identically. So there's a singularity and identity with everything else. And would you say that in any way there's a distinct, identifiable mood to that experience kind of generally, or is it totally yes. various? Yeah. At, at the beginning, actually, it is more neutral. Many people at the beginning sort of don't care about it. It feels neutral. It feels sort of like nothing, a big deal. It feels like uh, it doesn't have the color and the majesty and the brilliance over the second turning. It seems more uh, neutral in terms of color and taste and all that. That's how it begins. But that is just how it begins. And in some sense, it is its way of keeping itself secret. Mm. Because only by accepting the neutrality, by accepting we're not attached to any of the, uh, the illumination, I'm not attached to the vastness, I'm not attached to the light, I'm not attached to the awareness. When that happens, then things open up. All those come back again, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. So uh, the overriding sense that happens then is delight and freedom. A sense of freedom that is unrestrained, unconstrained, undefined. Freedom, not just the freedom of true nature, freedom in everything. Mind is free, the heart is free, being is free, and freedom also without it being related to anything. So freedom, instead of awareness or spaciousness being the sort of the defining thing, the defining thing here is freedom. And the affect of it is instead of bliss, it's delight. And what about the lightness? It's light also. It has lightness and uh, very light. I mean, but little, you mean like not heavy? Not heavy, yeah. Yeah, very, very, very. Yes, light and not heavy. But the lightness is actually present already in the second turning. It's mm -hmm. light. Uh, we're experiencing the pure awareness or emptiness, very light. Here it's light 
similarly that uh, in the term lightness and no heaviness but at the same time it could be light while at the same time immense mm -hmm. it could be immense dense sometimes it could feel like a rock or a meteor some people say that i feel like a meteor when i say well this meteor is it heavy I say no it's made out of nothing yeah you see mm, it's so a, a dense nothing it's a compacted sort of nothing there it's dense because there's no concept of space. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's part of it. So it feels dense or it feels full or it feels... Uh, and also because it, it appears as a form. Mm -hmm. It feels like a form, although the form is not necessarily a physical body form. It's an inner form, like a, what they call Sambhogakaya forms, for instance, mm -hmm. subtle form. So the sense of lightness has many degrees of lightness. turns out that the emptiness of the absolute is one kind of emptiness. And I have known many other kinds of emptiness. However, this one has its own emptiness. I call it nothingness. And this nothingness turns out to be the non-differentiated unity of all kinds of emptiness. And it can move from one to the other, which one will become dominant. It becomes complete emptiness, absence of existence. Or it could become openness, pure openness, just openness without anything being open. Do you find sometimes the emptiness manifests as total, we might say, confusion or like a kind of don't know experience? Sometimes the emptiness can appear as not knowing. Yeah. And uh, it's not confusion. Confusion is when you try to believe that not knowing means knowing missing. Mm -hmm. So you get confused. But the not knowing is, is, is its nature. It's mysterious. It doesn't mean uh, I'm going to know something that I don't know now. No, not knowing is part of its nature. In fact, true nature inherently is mysterious. Everything we know about it is something we know about it we don't know it completely yet and that is part of what i'm trying to bring in this book that everybody many people when they get to a realization they think they got it they know through nature and i'm saying yes you know through nature but through nature has more to it than that you know a part of true nature. yeah you know one way through nature can be experienced but can be experienced in many other ways and so that's part of the freedom, the freedom to move from one way of experience through nature to another. Mm. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm very uh, interested in and resonating with your description of this third turning. So maybe we'll come yeah. back to that at a certain point. But tell me more about the fourth turning. The fourth turning has many uh, realization, but what comes in it, part of what develops in my understanding is what I call the view of totality that I mentioned in the book. The view of totality, meaning each realization has its view. As you know from the Dzogchen, so you have to know the view, and then you have the experience. So the view and the realization are two sides of the same view. means how things appear from that perspective. So each realization has its view. And the view is partly conceptual. It's partly how you look at things, how you understand things, and how you conceive of things. So each realization, in each way of experiencing through nature, will give us a view. 
there's no way of experiencing through nature that doesn't have you. If you experience a state, the state has a view yes. because it, you know, it has this particular feature. Now, their results or the arise of what I call the view of totality, which means it is a view that is not attached to any one particular view, is open to all views, and it acknowledges that there are many views, each one is valid in its own without having to reconcile them. That is an important part of the view of totality. It is a view that is open to all views, and the views can be different or similar, uh, and they can uh, overlap or they cannot be reconciled. And I learned to, I don't need to reconcile them. I'm yeah. happy for each one of them to be what they are because that is how reality is. When you look at all the teachings, there are little differences between them. You can't reconcile them. And sometimes they have debates between them. Everybody trying to say, mine way is, is it? You're sort of a little different. You're, you haven't got it. And the view of totality says, no, that's not really the way it is. The way it is, the true nature manifests itself in many ways. Each one of them is completely true even though you cannot reconcile them. Yeah, the um, idea that there are many different, let's say, maps, yeah. and that the different maps don't all show the same thing, they, and sometimes actually contradict each other, doesn't mean that somehow they fail. Yeah. Each one is, in a way, complete and appropriate in its own context. And this is a viewpoint that we've been exploring on the show called meta-rationality. Yeah. Quite a beautiful uh, way of experiencing the manifold world of viewpoints. Yeah. So like the non-dual view, the second turning, and the unilocal view, the third turning, they're different. And you can't really reconcile. They're not they're a completely different way of looking at things like they go to a different angle about reality and they can be combined in experience but conceptually you cannot make them be there are completely different views of reality but they are each one of them is true genuine and is liberating and so would you characterize the fourth turning as the experience and understanding that there are these infinite ways of awakening yes I mean, I know some of them, but I don't know all of them. And I'm still learning. There are different ways of realization keep emerging. So because of that, the view of totality shows that there are many views, infinite ways through nature can manifest itself. Each one has its own view. And I can take one view or another, sometimes several views at the same time, I can't give up any of them at any time. I don't have to take a particular view. So there's a freedom, mean um, free floating in mm. terms of what is my view. I can't have a view depending on the situation, or I don't need to have a view. How would you describe having no view at all? Is that even possible? Yeah, having no view, it's more like it's not exactly that there's no view. It's like you don't care which yeah. view you have doesn't matter. It could be this view now, or second view. There's always a view. There's experience. always a view. Yeah. yeah, when there's experience, there's a view. Right. You see. 
So when people say, well, it's gone beyond mind, there's no mind, well, but that's a view. That's already a viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. that's already a view. <laughs> you know, say there's no mind, you know, that's a view, which is fine. It's valid, true, authentic, but I, I have to hold it to be the final one or the only true one. This is a very common experience I find with people in a non-dual place is that they are very fused and wedded and locked into the non-dual viewpoint as the only truth and do not seem to be willing to deviate from that. It's very Which I understand. I was in it for about 10, 15 years and it was very convincing because it feels like completely... It answers everything, and it fulfills everything, it's complete, it's, it's real, it's liberating. So when you're in it, it's hard to imagine there can be something else that is as valuable or as uh, relevant. But there develops a subtle attachment to it. It's just by the belief, that's it. Yep. Just the belief, that's it. It becomes an attachment. So... I don't have a belief that's it. If anything, that's, that's it. So what was it like for you having spent, you know, let's say 10 or 15 years really wedded to that belief? What was it like for you to let go of that? Was that traumatic in some way? Yeah, it, it was a loss. Mm. It felt like a loss. And there was a lot of grief mm. because it was, I was, it was in heaven of sorts. And I was sort of leaving there. I don't know where I was going. So for a while, there's a sense of loss, loss, a sense of grief, that something beautiful is being given up or taken away. And, and it was a process. And going through that was important. And I think everybody has to go through that process if they go away from the non-dual to something else. And, and that is true about going from any one place to another. There's always a sense of loss. Because especially if it's beautiful. In fact, people feel lost even if they leave something bad. You know, even when people <laughs> leave their suffering, they grieve. Yeah. Because they're used to it, their identity, right? The same thing. So if you leave something perfect and beautiful and you feel you're taken away from it or reality is moving the view to somewhere else, there is a sense of loss. Until we learn more about the new view and see that there was no loss. It was another thing being added, basically, another way. That was not gone, still available, but there's another thing now introduced that becomes possible. Hearing about these four turnings, which would be in shorthand, sort of no self, and then non-dual, and then unilocal, and then what would you, the, the view, view of totality. The view of totality, which includes many views, so I mentioned several views. There are other views, other realizations, the full turning, sure. that I don't talk about much. But uh, I don't mention because they're not relevant for most people. Because they need to first learn the non-dual first. Non-dual is really the way to get out of duality. It's, yes. it's the best way. Because well, it's, a, it's in contrast to it. It's, it's obvious. It's most the opposite of it. So you, you're stuck in the dualistic. You're suffering. So non-dual seems logical play to be free from it. So that's how it happens to most people. But then to go to a place, for instance, in, uh, in the fourth turning, where you the realization is, I am not anything. No. What is that? Mm. So, because always in those states, 
I am something. I am the absolute. I am the void, or I am unilocal kind of realization. And the fraternity, there's one, one possibility is that at uh, one time I had this, I'm not anything. I'm not being anything. Mm. And that was not state of emptiness, was not state of presence. No, I was just not anything. Everything was there except me. Yes. I wasn't any of it. So the way you described these four turnings, it kind of leads into the question I was going to ask, which is there does seem to be perhaps a natural order there, a sequence. I don't mean stages, like one is better than the other, yeah. but it does seem like they would tend to unfold in that order. So I'm curious. That, that's if, how they happened to me. Yeah. They happened to me in that kind of order. However, I don't necessarily believe there has to be that order because I've seen other people. This is what I was going to yeah, ask. Yeah, I've seen other people who forced us to experience the unilocal more easy than non-dual. Mm. I was surprised to see that. Like in my own school, when I started teaching in non-dual, I thought nobody knew about it. Many people talked to us, oh, I had this experience. Some people know it, have access to that, you know. So that makes me not assume that the progression has to be that way for everybody. It might be true for most people, but there, there can be exception. It's that so people can be in the fourth turning to start with before they even go to the second turning, third turning. And you've seen that in practice. I've seen it in some people, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let's talk just a little bit more about some of the fourth turning awakenings that seem to be perhaps not that relevant, but maybe interesting. Fourth turning awakening? Yeah. Well, I mentioned the one where I'm not being anything. Yes. That's one of them, mm -hmm. and which is really delightful. Okay, not anything. I mean, there is enjoyment, there is life, but there's nobody there, nothing is there, no self, no true self, mm. no, I'm not awareness, I'm just not anything. So, I'm not anything is not the same thing as I am nothing. Yes. I am nothing, I'm still I'm nothing. I'm not anything, I mean, cannot describe me as anything. And it is amazing freedom mm. and delight and enjoyment and freedom living a normal life. It's like, <laughs> it is paradoxical because I can still see the body and all that, but I'm not anything. I'm not the body. I'm not uh, the consciousness. And that's one of the realizations, mm. which is sort of cute. And not many people mention that. And for most people, I think, when they first hear it, they wouldn't see what's so interesting about that. If somebody comes in from the first turning, for instance, you tell them about the, I'm not anything, so what's so good about that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want that? Yeah. Why would you want that? Like, you lose everything. You know, and so uh, that's why I don't teach it at the beginning. And it's not relevant, really. Mm -hmm. But as people go deeper, it begins to happen to them anyway. Yeah. So that is one of the ways. There are other ways, other realizations I could mention. There's a realization, for instance, that I call uh, and contradistinction, that each realization, both in my teaching and many other teaching, they talk about the condition the primordial condition, the natural condition, the non-dual condition, right? Even the people who don't want to give it word, they call it 
primordial condition or a pure condition or yeah. the original condition or something like that. And that is, uh, is realizing the original natural condition. And uh, so the question of condition has become important. You don't talk about the ground, you want beyond the ground now, it's just condition, primordial or original or natural. Or, and then there's the realization that arises, which I call non-condition has nothing to do with condition. And how would you describe this non-condition? That one is really interesting because it's more like everything is what it is. The way it is ordinarily. The mountains are mountains, the streets are streets, the trees are trees. However, there is nobody perceiving them. And they are not, they don't have a condition. You can, there's nobody there to say what is their condition. Mm. The question of condition or their nature disappears. The idea that they have it, nature is gone. A mountain is just a mountain. What is its nature? It's just a mountain. A river, what's a river? It's just a river. Mm. What is walking? It's just walking. What is its condition? I've already done that, understood the condition, now there is no need for condition, and reality doesn't think of what condition it is. What is its nature? It is just appear the way it appears. So it is an interesting realization when everything is what it is in an extraordinary way without there being a perceiver, without there being a subject, there isn't even the concept of experience. It's not an experience. It's just things as they are. Because experience, somebody's experiencing them. Here, there's nobody experiencing them, and there's no consciousness experiencing them, and no awareness aware of them. No, they're just being themselves. That's all. And so everybody will say, well, how can that be? There must be somebody aware of them. And I said, well, reflecting back on it, I can say that. But in the midst of the realization, there is no sense that there is an awareness aware of these things. They're just a mountain, just being a mountain. And there's just a mountain. Sometimes I piece myself, for instance, like listening to music, right? I am the music. And then beyond that, there's simply music. I'm not even the music. There's just music happening. Nobody's hearing it. Nobody listening to it. It's just music. So we have these three turnings that you've described very clearly. A lot of uh, crisp detail, which I really appreciate. And if I understand what you're saying on a bigger level, you're saying that all of these share something in common and that yeah. it is the true nature. Yeah. So... True nature, which in this book I call the philosopher's stones, because I use the words philosopher's stone or lapis philosophorum, the way they called it, because for the alchemist, philosopher's stone is a secret element, which if you find, it becomes the key to the secrets of the universe. So they're always looking for the philosopher's stone, because if you have the philosopher's stone, everything is accessible, everything is possible, know of anything and everything so through nature i see the, the philosopher's stone as really just a way of referring to through nature that this is through na- what is through nature well it, it is awareness but it's also not awareness it is emptiness but it can be something else not it can be nothing 
can be nobody. So true nature is this mysterious kind of illuminating creative reality that is always present. So all realization, I see them, each one of them is a face of true nature. True nature presenting a face. But what is true nature behind the face? That's what people want to know. They think if I know the true nature behind the face, I will know true nature for what it is. Mm. What I'm discovering, whenever you see what is behind the face, it is another face. Mm. What is true nature ultimately? You can't say. And they're all true. If you say it's awareness, you're not wrong. If you abide in awareness or abide in emptiness or abide in consciousness or abide in love, you're free and you are through nature. Now, the way you're describing this, it sounds like there are two possibilities. One is that you're always seeing some piece of true nature, and so that's true, and yet it's not the whole story, and maybe you can never see the whole story. And another way of interpreting what you said would be, in a way, true nature has no true nature. Like, it's always different. Yeah, so the question is, if we're seeing the faces of true nature, does that mean there is an underlying thing behind all these faces that is the same thing? Or is it just the faces? Yes. You see? And that question is unanswerable. Mm-hmm. Because to answer it, it means you know through nature in an ultimate way, in a mm-hmm. final way. So you're saying we just run into the limit of our ability to understand deep reality? It's not our limit. That's how reality yeah. is. Yeah. Reality is like quantum theory. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you perceive is the way reality is. That's what quantum theory says. It depends on the observer. Of the observe, there's no electron until you observe it. There is no universe until you observe it. The same thing. There is no awareness until you're aware of the awareness. So that's how reality is. Reality in a a spiritual world is in some sense very similar to the physics idea of quantum theory. That's how I see it. And would you say that this is merely a parallelism or a metaphor, or do you think there is? It's a metaphor. I use it as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so... Otherwise, I would have a formula for it. (laughs) (laughs) We could do it mathematically. Yeah. So here we have this unknowable and yet partially knowable true nature. Where do we go with that, or how do we work with it? Is that you keep knowing it. Mm -hmm. In new and different ways. Yeah, that actually becomes good news. Mm -hmm. Because people feel, oh, I I didn't get it yet. But the way you see it, no, I got it. And I got it that there's more there to get. And that's the fun of it. And that means there's a continual discovery that is possible. How I can be, how the world can be, how reality can be. Yeah, so you don't it, end up in some ultimate condition. Yeah, to, to end up in ultimate condition means to reach the end. Yeah, And here there's no end. And there's the fact that there's no end is the good news mm. because there's always another way of experiencing thing which will bring in a new magic that you haven't experienced before. And I'm curious for you, is this ever unfolding magic something that you are, I'm just going to use conventional language here, even yeah. though it's slightly misleading, but is it something that you are almost like whimsically 
allowing to unfold however it unfolds? Or are you systematically exploring different corners of it? Or how is this unfolding for you personally? Both, both. I mean, I don't know what's be next. Mm -hmm. So I can't be working toward it. I'm just open. I might be meditating or might be doing what I'm, I'm, I'm not going toward anywhere. So there's no objective, no goal to go toward. But things emerge on their own because there's this openness and no sticking to a view. If I stick to a view, it will just keep the view. If my consciousness is free from view, then other views can arise on their own. There is an openness of views. And then those things, when they arise, then, of course, I'm interested and I explore. And I, there's a more systematic way of exploring this new way of things arising to know it as much as possible. So, so I could spend some time in it. And so there's an element of openness and there's also an element of, let's say, curiosity. Right? Oh, yeah. Curiosity is a big part of it. Curiosity and love of discovery. Mm. And, uh, love and novelty. You see, I'm not the kind of person who want to perch someplace forever, find my, retire, find my lot, <laughs> and live for, happily for. I'm not like that. I'm, I'm more like a traveler, you know, more like an adventure. Things just happening, and reality is dynamic. You know, the ever changing is dynamic and reveals many ways and that shows me too the freedom of spirituality that regardless how much the, the human race have learned about spirituality we haven't learned the whole thing yet mm. the same thing in science actually if you take science they never say we will ever learn everything there's always going to be learning there's always going to be new things to discover it is never going to come time for physical chemistry to say, we got it all. Yeah. Nobody thinks that way. It will be illogical to think. Same thing about spirituality, right? But for some reason, the spiritual people think they could find the final thing that be done. And it is sort of a tendency of the human mind to want to do that because it's a need for security of sort, for a final resting place. And here... There's no need for a fire resting. There are many resting places. So what do you think is the hardest part about understanding or accepting or integrating this viewpoint of many viewpoints for people? Well, the first thing you'll encounter many people is that they already have a viewpoint. And especially if they have a realization, non-dual or any kind, they think that's it. And to move off that is not easy because yeah. they believe it's true, and it is true. It's the big truth. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, and it is true, and that's the problem with it. It's not wrong. They are true. They are in a realized place. They are, it is authentic. It is the truth. So to know that and to say, I don't have to experience things that way. Maybe that's out of the way. It's, it's a big thing. It's a big risk, and it seems logical. So it's a difficult thing to let, that will be the first difficulty, I think. The second difficulty, of course, as a pure experience, is a kind of uh, insecurity because there isn't one place you're going to just settle in and know and know for sure and you'll be certain about it. 
and you have a certainty and you're done. There isn't that. And that for a human being, that is very uncomfortable. Yeah, even if it's comfortable for the person, it's not comfortable for anyone they interact with. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, so, how you interact with other people, that'll be a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. Right? So there's these two, let's say, difficulties. How would someone work with those? Let's start with the first one of being, of really truly believing they found I mean, the that's one. one reason why I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. I'm inviting people to say, okay, you're right, you got it, but why not be open to the other guy who believe they got it and it's different and try to learn what they're saying. Because it's really, it's a way of having people be open to each other, traditions or teaching be open to each other to see what is the truth of the other. So I am Buddhist, I know Buddhism, but I want to learn about Vedanta. I'm Vedantist, I know Vedanta, I want to be open to see what do the Sufis say. What is their truth? Not from the perspective that I know it, I'm just going to add a little bit. No, I mean, they might have a truth just as valid as mine, and I'm open to it, you see. So that's the invitation, the invitation to go beyond subtle fundamentalism. Mm. And would you say that subtle fundamentalism has a particular way you can work with it? Is it just a relaxing? Is it an opening? Or is there more to it than that? Maybe the subtle just... fundamentalism is just the being consumed by the view, mm-hmm. filled by the view, so that you're identified with the view. You think the view is it, that is the reality. And to be open from that, in some sense, it has to be grace, has to be come from mm. true nature itself to throw you out of this place to somewhere else and to get disoriented until you find yourself in another place. That is also good. It's just as good as this is true. So in some sense, you cannot do it intentionally. You know, you can learn to be open and my teaching for instance i teach people to be open i teach them many things that help them to be more open but the main thing that openness i call it all-rounded openness meaning like an uh, experience of pure awareness or pure emptiness it's total openness mm. person feels open and if you for instance meet some of the great master they're really open they're open to you, they're open to reality. However, they're not open to another teaching. Yeah. <laughs> you see? <laughs> All-rounded openness means really open to everything else, even to other person experience and, and view. And that is, you know, uh, that's really going beyond mind. Well, I think you it's see. so powerful how in our society, concept and mental acuity and ability to hang on to belief is so important. I mean, yeah. this is our final way of judging people in a way is yeah. socially is what they believe. And so to move beyond belief or to be able to contact many different viewpoints authentically and inhabit them authentically and not get stuck, that's very dangerous. It feels dangerous. Yeah. It feels dangerous, feels risky. As I said, there was a grief, a loss. Mm going from one to the other, and it's like a journey, you know, from one universe to another. It's like, you know, the different realizations. One way of looking at it, when I'm in the fourth turning, 
is like you're going to another universe, or a parallel universe, different kind of being, and experiencing spirituality from their perspective. Mm. They're not the perspective of human beings. Because other beings, or different galaxy, whatever, they have their spirituality, but it's not necessarily like the way human beings experience it. Or they don't have the same concept. Then they might have something else. Yes. You see, it's like that. It's like really, it's not alien, it's just so different. Mm. You see. So another thing in the book that I found quite intriguing was the idea of, um, the, again, you're taking from the linguistic or concept field of alchemy, and you're talking about the red sulfur quality of true nature mm-hmm. or of the philosopher's stone, Yeah, which if I understand it is its own energy of continuous awakening. Yeah, I talk about the red sulfur, which is also called essential activation. And essential activation of the red sulfur is not a kind of awakening or a kind of enlightenment. It's more like the consciousness is uh, set on fire, is turned on to keep on burning. And keep on burning means revealing more things. So it is like reality let loose. Mm-hmm. Consciousness let loose to reveal its possibilities. And instead of finding a place and putting it in a box, and this is reality, here all the boxes are gone. And the way I understand it, there is no way to turn on this red sulfur quality, correct? It's, you cannot do it intentionally, but mm. there are many elements mm. that help. Mm. You know, like um, what I call... Um, necessary awakening and I call primary awakening are important so knowing true nature is important because uh, knowing true nature experientially and being and realizing it so encountering true nature that's what I call necessary awakening which means you realize from experience there is something in reality that is very different from everything else you have experienced in your life it's not the body, it's not the thoughts, it's not the feeling, it's not, none of that. You realize spirit as spirit, you encounter it. And that's what I call, you know, uh, encounter of the third kind in mm. some sense. <laughs> yes, you use the close encounter of the third kind. Yeah, metaphor. I use that. But you realize it's something really different. That is called necessary awakening. And then I talk about uh, primary awakening, which is, not only you encounter the third kind, you encounter the fourth kind. I mean, you become it. Mm-hmm. You realize that that true nature that you have encountered is you. Yes. Both of these are important for the red sulfur, but they might not do it by themselves. There's more to it than that. And is there a particular quality to the uh, moment that this red sulfur turns on, so to speak? It's more like wanting, loving to know the truth, whatever mm-hmm. the truth is, wherever it's going to take, without uh, feeling that the truth has to be defined in a final way. Yeah. And by truth, I don't mean a true statement or a word. I mean truth of reality, the yeah. way things are experienced. So that is part of it, but part of it is also a sense of energy and a dynamism and a movement and change. 
and change and movement is experienced as fundamental and as part as inherent to reality and reality is like a chameleon would you say this is somehow fundamentally different than impermanence than impermanence mm-hmm. well similar to impermanence in the sense impermanent means everything changes and you know has an end beginning and an end but impermanence can be seen from the perspective of the second turning. Mm-hmm. It is a characteristic of the second turning. In non-dual teaching, you see that everything that has form is impermanent. Uh, so even emptiness is empty. Mm-hmm. Even emptiness, there's nothing there. In that sense, impermanence. So the red sulfur is includes impermanence, but it's more than that. It's more changeability. And uh, the chameleon quality of, of true nature that's always revealing one phase at one time and for to reveal another phase. When it reveals one phase, it hides many other phases. We don't know how many phases. And that's why I find it exciting for the human race. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the next enlightened person, what kind of thing they're going to experience. It's not necessarily going to experience something we've experienced before. Yeah, this is a a kind of a strange question that's been coming up for me as you're describing in the fourth turning these various awakenings. It seems to point to the possibility of there being entire spiritualities or entire religious teachings that just have never been explored. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Mm. That we have not discovered spirituality in its totality. Just like science has not discovered the secrets of material sub in a world completely, and they will never do. Yeah. Same thing. The spiritual material we can never completely, you know, know it and, and everything about it. We could know fundamental things about it that are liberating, but there is no need to mm. really to try to know everything about it. First, the need itself disappears. That's part of the freedom. I don't need to know. And second, there's understanding. There's no end. So how can you understand? You know, uh, know it completely when it has no end. In fact, that is one reason why I remember talking to a friend when they told me about in the Kabbalah, they have their ultimate, they call it Ensof. Mm. And for most people, define Ensof as infinite. Limitless, yeah. Limitless. I discovered that the true meaning, the literal meaning, is not that. The literal meaning is no end. Mm. Not limitless, it's no end, has no end. It keeps going and going and going, you see. So interesting. Yeah. One thing I think I would like people to know is that I'm not denying anybody's experience. I'm not belittling it. And I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying whatever path you're on and you're traversing, traverse it. Learn it completely as possible. It is true and it leads to liberation and that might be it for you. But I'm also saying don't assume that the next person will experience the same thing. Mm-hmm will have the same religion. They might have different religion. Other teaching might have different religion, which can bring in bigger openness than the openness of our own realization. So it's both 
encouraging people on their own paths and at the same time encouraging people to be open to other people having their own truth that might be different from our truth without there being a contradiction. And now yeah. we can live together, be friends, because we're all true nature in some sense, although we know true nature differently. Yeah. So I've been a book editor a long time, and I know that books take years to put out. And The Alchemy of Freedom is something that's been out for a little while. So I'm curious, what are you working on now? Well, I'm actually trying to publish several books that are not are a different thing. One book, for instance, I'm trying to publish has to do with integration of spiritual realization with phenomenology, Husserl and Heidegger, their view of phenomenology, and using that as a stepping stones for the fourth turning. Fascinating. Is there anything you can share from that work? Well, for instance, uh, one thing that Husserl talked about and the phenomenologists talk about was what they call first personal givenness, that each experience is always experience of somebody. Even if there's no self, there's somebody experiencing it. So what does that mean? What is this first personal givenness? Where does it come from? Right? So there are many discussions. And there's people trying to explain what does that mean? Does it mean there's some kind of subtle self that makes the experience be experienced with somebody? Because they say experience is never anonymous. It's never just experience. And we know that even enlightenment, somebody is enlightened. Yes. When somebody like the other person is not. Yes. So it's obviously it's that personal enlightenment, even though the person says, I'm not anybody. I'm not a person, I'm not, they're still their enlightenment. So there is a first personal givenness to them. That is an insight from phenomenology. They actually work on that and try to understand it. And they have many solutions about it in terms of what is, maybe there's something called the minimal self. Some talk about the thin self, mm-hmm. something inherent to, people talk about the stream of consciousness and whether the stream consciousness has some characteristic to it, or all these things. And I take those as stepping stone, very useful way of getting into understanding some very subtle thing about uh, spiritual paths. Would you say that from that viewpoint, the experience of no-self is not binary, but instead more like gradually less, 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 less self, but there would never be absolutely truly none there to always be first personal mm-hmm. givenness to it yeah regardless even in the experience i am not anybody it's it still first, your experience it's still the first personal givenness even there's nobody there the first personal givenness is a very interesting observation yes it's a very important and people miss it when they try to go into no self, there's no self. They say there's no self, there's no person, there's persons, in it. like many of the non-dual people. They say the individual, the self is a delusion or an illusion, it's not real. What's real there is only pure awareness. However, there's always somebody knowing that. It's always the first person givenness, you can't get away from it. Yeah. 
you see and i find this very interesting very useful actually for and it opens the way to many other many kind of realizations so how would let's say some a spiritual seeker be able to work with that understanding that you just described well it is a very good challenge for people who believe there's no individual mm. you see there's no individual consciousness so because this, the first person of givenness really points to the fact that there is some individual, some some kind of individuation. Yeah, consciousness always manifests through an individuation. Yeah. Even though it is no self, it is some kind of individuation. And what is this individuation? And that, when we get into subtleties between different teachings. And so the idea would be to begin to investigate this tiny amount, this thin self or tiny yeah. amount of self. What is present. it? Yeah. Well, is there a thin self? I mean, a thin self is just one person's expression for it. A thin self or minimal self. And is it a self at all? Does it have to be a self for first person givenness? You yeah. see? What I see, it only means there is some particularity, some particular individuation or particularity that accounts for first person givenness. You cannot take the whole universe as a whole for first person givenness. You cannot take pure awareness or the ground of, you know, Dharmakaya and say it's first person givenness because it's always somebody who's experiencing that. Dharmakaya does not say I am Dharmakaya completely by itself without human beings. That's so fascinating. So this is a whole book you're working on? Does yeah, it have a title that's at this book point? We're editing, no. Does it have a title? No, I don't have a title for it yet, actually. <laughs> it's still in the initial stages. That's one thing. Another thing I'm working on, too, which is a teaching I've given, which I think is very useful for many people to learn, is about instincts and the role of instincts in life and the difficulty they present in any spiritual path. Because instincts, instinctual, like instinctual drive, are very powerful forces in human beings. The drive for survival, for instance, is an instinct. The instinct for socialization, the sexual instinct, for instance. These are powerful. What do you do with them? Yes. So it's a whole teaching about what they are, how you deal with them, how you work with them, how to work with them so, so that they become part of the drive for enlightenment. Can you give us some preview about how you're going to talk about working with those? Well, for instance, the social drive for company, for togetherness. Some animals have it, and they gather together and serve survival, but also it has to do with the limbic system, and uh, which brings in a sense of relatedness and uh, company and um, sharing and all of that. And, and that is a primitive thing. A primitive thing is innate to mammals in general. Yes. And then what I find that if you work with it and experience it in its purity by liberating it from its history we have around it. First of all, we have a history around it. And that history needs to be opened up and clarified and purified and so we can let go of it. So we can experience it in its purity. 
when we experience it in its purity, then it has the opportunity for it to evolve and develop. And the social drive, the drive to be with somebody becomes, in a spiritual sense, the drive toward intimacy. Mm. Intimacy of consciousness with another consciousness, which brings us closer to the second turning, to the non-dual, you see, with its intimacy. So the drive for intimacy already makes the social drive if you if you recognize it is a direct drive for intimacy and it changes from just i want to be with somebody could be with somebody without being intimate yeah right and just like sexual thing people call it intimate but sex can't be sex without being intimate right it can be mechanical yeah it can be mechanical it could be violent all kind of stuff mm-hmm. or it could be forced but then when we get when we realize that the drive to togetherness can evolve to become the drive for intimacy. It already becomes a drive toward realization. Because intimacy is a characteristic of uh, enlightenment. Would you say that all the instincts, in a way, um, contain drives towards awakening within them? I would say they're all expression of the drive for awakening, but they are in a primitive way. Mm-hmm. They appear in a way that are necessary for survive. We need to survive physically to be able to awaken. You know, if we die when we're young, we'll never have the chance. We need to grow and develop and learn. So we need the, a primitive drive for survival, and we need the sexual drive. We need all in their primitiveness. But that's not the end for them. Yeah. But if we really stay with them, we will see at some point they are really drive with the same life force. All expression of a, of a life force, and the life force inherently is always moving toward greater illumination, greater life. Earlier, you brought up aliens, and so I'll just ask you a theoretical question: If there were, let's say, an alien life form, and it was sentient, and it had a completely different set of drives than a yeah. human being, which is unlikely, but let's say they had at least mm, some drives possible, that were different. Yeah. Would those drives also be something that would inherently push towards awakening? Well, I think yes, because I think the fundamental thing in reality as a whole is true nature. Mm-hmm. And a true nature has an inherent nature of revealing itself. It is inherent to it. It is to reveal itself for it to be known, and to so, know itself. So whatever drive it, it appears in is bound to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. It might take millions of years, <laughs> as we've seen. Yeah. So if true nature wants to reveal itself, how is it that it never is revealed completely? How come it's not revealed completely? Yeah, if it is all about revealing itself. It is all about revealing itself. And I wouldn't say it wants to reveal itself, mm-hmm. because that makes it anthropomorphic. It is inherently self-revealing. Yes. But it's self-revealing, you have to remember, not just the light and the luminosity and the liberation is an expression of true nature. Everything is an expression of true nature. So the arising of a bird in the sky is true nature revealing itself. This is one way it reveals itself. So there are many ways of revealing itself. 
And then the revealing itself in terms of its illuminating nature, when it begins to know itself. But it's always revealing itself without it knowing it is through nature. Most of nature is that. It's the true nature revealing some of its possibilities, mm-hmm. you see, without knowing it is true nature and to get to a certain state of consciousness when it becomes self-conscious. So is consciousness itself a result of true nature? Yeah, consciousness is one of the faces of true nature. Mm-hmm. Is one of the attributes, you could say, or one of the characteristic, inherent characteristics of true nature, yeah. But also, true nature can be without consciousness. So tell me more about that. Well, I mean, many people think consciousness and true nature are the same thing. Yes. That is a very common view. And I find that to be limited, because in some states, I'm not conscious. I'm completely gone. There's no consciousness, no awareness, nothing. No experience, right? And then there arises consciousness. Well, what was there before? Mm-hmm. You know, that was, was still true nature. Yeah. You see? So in your way of describing it, true nature is more fundamental than consciousness. Yes, that consciousness is really an expression. You see that actually in the second turning in the realization, what I call realization of the absolute. Realization of the Absolute, the Absolute, or what some people call Dharmakaya, is a kind of a mystery, mm-hmm. a mysterious darkness from which arises awareness. Awareness arises out of it. The awareness is the luminosity of the mystery. So the mystery, what is the mystery? It's a mystery. The mystery is not because we don't know it. No, it is, its nature is that it is mystery. And the luminosity, the radiance, the magic of the mystery is awareness. But it itself is not awareness, it is the source of awareness. So is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap this up? I think I will say I'm, I've enjoyed this discussion with you, Michael. And it's good. I think we covered uh, big ground, a lot of things. Yeah, really and I'm hoping some of it will be useful for some people. I don't imagine everybody will get everything we've talked about. Because we talked about many things. Yes. And some of it will be relevant for some people, some relevant for other people. Some people will appreciate maybe parts of it. But I think, you know, hopefully it will be useful. I think people will find it very useful and interesting. I mean, that's what I want. I want it to be interesting and useful. Useful in their own work, in their own practice. That's my objective in the book. I'm really encouraging everybody who's doing practice to do their practice. Yeah. You see? I found that to be a really interesting quality of the book, even though you are emphasizing that true nature is self-revealing and doesn't require any effort. At the same time, we must continue practicing. Yeah. Well, that's another secret. That's in the Runaway Realization book, the emphasis on that where I talk about the dynamic of realization, which is, what is the relation between realization and practice? And here I'm sort of similar to Dogen, who thinks practice is realization. (laughs) You see, that when you practice, it is true nature practicing. Mm. It is the true nature appearing as a person practicing. And that is, in fact, a big part of that book, is that people think they are deciding to practice, they learn to 
practice and they sit and, and and practice and then from that there emerges some kind of insight or or uh, illumination while if you look deep into it it is already through nature that is putting in our mind the intention to practice yeah. it is through nature giving us the discipline to practice it is through nature that giving us the love for reality so it was never coming from the self so that's uh, what I call the dynamic of uh, realization, which is sort of, it's as mysterious, seems like we're doing it, while in fact we're not doing it. There's something bigger and mysterious that's doing it. Thank you so much, Hamid. It's been a real uh, pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Good. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource, and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. 
Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R.com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>